Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. The Monster. My mother stood in the corner of my bedroom, smashing my doll against the floor. I shrank back into the top bunk, trying to make myself invisible as I watched on in horror. Esther was my only doll. Mummy was screaming, and it would take me a minute to realise she was screaming at me. Dussie, get me a knife. I tumbled down the ladder of the bunk and ran, down the stairs, through the hall, and into the kitchen. The sun in the backyard filtered through the windows. I stopped for a moment and stared at my bike, propped against the shed. I could hear the girl across the road laughing with her brothers as they rode up and down our dead-end street. I was envious of her life. I had spent so many afternoons watching her family from the upstairs window while I was locked inside and forbidden to play. Dassi Ulich is a lobbyist, justice campaigner, and advocate for sexual abuse survivors. Today I'm talking to Dassi Ulich about her memoir, In Bad Faith. Dassi, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me on here. Dassi, you grew up within an exclusive Jewish ultra-Orthodox community in Melbourne, the Adas Israel community. How did it come to exist in Australia? When, how, and by whom was it founded? It was founded prior to World War II, but really I think the the community came together as Adas, as we know Adas now, shortly after the war with Holocaust survivors coming to Australia. And they saw the Jewish life that wasn't in Australia and weren't very happy with the state of religiosity and decided to create a community where people observe the laws of Torah and the day-to-day life to the most extreme. The community wanted a more religious way of life and they decided to create a das and follow the way of the Torah down to its last letter. Can you give me a sense of the Adas community, the practices, the attitudes, and also the reality of your experience living in that community? There were rules about how to live from the moment you woke up until the moment I went to sleep. It was a very insular, exclusive community where the only people I really spoke to or had anything to do with were those within the same community that believed the same way that I did. And Every single moment of our life was governed by these rules from the time I woke up and washed my hands and I would know how exactly how many times to wash my hands, when to wash my hands, which hand to wash first. It was down to the most minutest details. I didn't know any other way of life. So for that, for me, was very, very normal. And I started in a dust school as a very young child and learned about our way of life from, from a very young age. And so I knew how to behave. There are over 600 commandments or rules derived from the Torah, as you say, and these regulate the behaviour for your Adas community. What are some of those commandments and how are they applied to you and to your siblings? So there are 613 commandments. And when I say 613, every single commandment is just an overarching commandment. So, for example, there would be 39 rules that we would have on Shabbat, which is the holy day of rest. But each of those 39 rules would then have 20 or 30 other smaller rules that would be derived from those rules. So it went down to the most minutest aspect of our lives. 
So we would have blessings before and after any food. We would have uh, the way that we dressed was very uh, regulated, especially for girls, covered from head to toe, and really the only things that would be showing would be my hands and my face. There was a holy day of rest where we didn't have, we didn't use any electricity, we didn't use any money, we didn't work at all. Everything needed to be prepared before the day of rest. And this always meant that Thursday night would be cooking up a storm for the Shabbat and preparing and cleaning. And so by the time Shabbat comes in, we would not be doing absolutely anything. How did your parents come to be involved in the Adas community? My parents came to Australia in the early 1980s and were quite welcomed by a rabbi in the community, in the wider Jewish community. My mother really wanted to become religious. She was struggling to have more children and she asked a rabbi for a blessing in regards to having more children. And his answer was, if you became more religious, you would have more children. And she really wanted this way of life. And so slowly she joined the wider Jewish community and adopted some of its practices. But then they lived next door to a rabbi in the dust community who kind of took them under their wing and taught them their dust way of life. The wider Jewish community still existed within the secular world. And, um, you know, and while they kept to all of those laws, they still, they weren't exclusive or insular. And my mother really wanted that really exclusive insular experience of the Jewish community. And how did their involvement in the Adas community affect their attitude to care, to parenthood? I don't know if religion was the reason that they were extremely abusive. I think they used religion as an excuse to be very abusive. But I think the insular and exclusiveness of the community meant that they could abuse us and it it wouldn't be seen or heard. As a young child, I didn't understand why I felt terribly wrong all the time, why I felt like I was a terrible child. And I felt that continuously. I lived in a in a very heightened state of hypervigilance and fear. And I didn't understand that it wasn't normal. I was told to one of the top 10 commandments of the Torah is honor thy mother and father. And I believe that that's what I was supposed to do. And somehow I was getting it wrong. I didn't understand that it wasn't normal until I was a teenager. One thing that comes through in your book is that there was, in fact, an observable world outside your world. It's a secular world outside the bubble in which you, your family and the Addis community existed. What was your sense of that world? Were you curious about that world, maybe even envious? Not as a young child. I felt very proud of the world that I was in. I was very much, it was very much ingrained in me that that we were better than other people. Was there a sense of superiority in your attitudes to the outside world? Oh, absolutely. And that was ingrained from a very young child. I would look at the people around me and think, you know, I'm better than them. I'm closer to God. Um, I'm living life the right way. And I was very much taught that everyone outside of our community was, I was taught a lot that people were just druggies and alcoholics and finding ways to fill their life because they didn't have the beauty of the life that we live. You were denied some of the simple pleasures of life. And one of those was when you came across a young girl, perhaps in your street, who was singing and your reaction to that was, and as you write, I yearned for her life. What was the effect on you of perhaps of those simple pleasures of things like singing? How did that affect you? 
it surprised me so much that she was allowed to sing in church because she had told us that she was just coming back from church and she had been in the choir. And as a young girl, we were supposed to stay as as hidden and as as unobtrusive and as possible and not draw any attention to us, which meant in all of the public spaces, we watched the men perform rituals. We watched, they led the rituals. We were kept back. We were kept behind um, windows that were stained so that the men couldn't see us in the synagogue. And so to know that she was, she went to a place of worship, I understood that was a place of worship that I absolutely wasn't allowed to think about or know about and was singing in a choir. It just absolutely amazed me. And I was envious of that. I was envious of her ability to what seemed to me to be so free. Can you tell me a little bit about your siblings? Tell me a little bit about Tamar, uh, your eldest sister. She was kicked out of the house at the age of 16. What was your relationship with Tamar at the time and, and how did it affect your thinking? So I had two older siblings, Dahlia and Tamar, and Dahlia left the house when I was very young to go to a girl's seminary overseas. So I don't have many memories of her as a young child. But Tamar was my safety as a young child. She saw the abuse that was happening. She saw the way that we were expected to be utter robots and not move and, and be still and the punishments my mother would give that were very cruel at times and the way that we were starved. And she was the person that tried to be as protective as possible to our young, to, to myself and to my younger siblings. And I just remember her putting us to bed every night and folding the washing and sitting there on the bed and reading our stories because she felt, and she tells me now, she feels that as a young, you know, as young children, we should have been read stories when we were going to bed. And she felt that that was something that she could do. She couldn't always protect us, but that was something that she could do, put us to bed in a, in, in a safe, comforting way. So when she left the house, the world just became a lot more scarier. This was a very common thing that my mother would do. She would decide at some point that a child was not worthy of being her child anymore or didn't deserve to be a child, and she would go and drop them off. And this happened to me. It happened to my siblings. It happened to Tamar, which I detail a bit in the book. She would just drop them off at a park and say, you're no longer part of this family, and not just this family, you're no longer part of this community. You're not Jewish anymore, which, of course, was the worst thing for me as a young child. So I do recall my sister being sent out of home and, and watching her go and wondering if she would ever come back. She did come back a few days later, but it wasn't it, a year later she left her girl seminary overseas. I was also appalled by some of the abuse that you and your uh, siblings suffered, particularly Isaac, uh, and this this practice of being locked in a cupboard. What do you think the purpose of being locked in a cupboard was? We were very much expected to be robots and expected to behave at all times exactly how our mother expected us to, which meant not being children. And there was no rhyme or reason of why we'd be sent into the cupboard, but it was usually because we had upset our mother in some way. And my memories of myself because of my disassociation and the way that I survived meant that I don't have a lot of memories of myself going as a young child, but I do have quite a few memories of my younger brother because I felt, my younger brothers, I felt quite protective over them. And there's some that stand out of my younger brother being so small and being kept in the cupboard, not even knowing how to understand time yet. 
and not knowing when he would be let out and crying and screaming, which of course irked my mother. And then she would extend the time and he didn't understand that. And I just remember trying to explain that to him. It's okay. It's going to finish. You know, you will be out of there soon. We were absolutely terrified of that cupboard. In retrospect, do you attribute the attitude of your mother to the religious practice or perhaps to something else like mental illness, for example? I think I think it was mental illness. I think, um, again, religion allowed her to do what she did in, in such a hidden way um, that no one else could see. But um, it was a lot of intergenerational trauma as well. Your sisters were enrolled in a staunch Lubavitch school, Beth Rivka. What was the philosophy and how did it relate to the Adas community in which you lived? So I didn't go to Beth Rivka. I started in Adas, but my older sisters did go through Beth Rivka. And it's part of the Lubavitch community where um, they're part of the wider Jewish community. They observe the same rules as Adas, but they're very involved in the secular world. So particularly in trying to draw people towards religion, whereas Adas didn't have anything like that. Adas is very insular and they do not at all involve themselves in the secular world. Malka Leifer, that name is now infamous. Leifer is currently serving a 15-year sentence for sexual abuse of you, Dussie, and your sister Ellie. We know from the news reports that Leifer lived in Israel for a period and managed to avoid deportation to Australia for some time. What role did the Adas community play in that? And what kind of support did you receive from the wider community in Australia in bringing some justice? It was, I think, only during my civil case in 2015, the trial of my civil case, that I actually understood the extent of how Lifer had been sent away before any police reports were made. And it, Adas school had paid for her to leave the country. And as, at, very shortly after they took the charges to her and accused her of these charges. And of course she denied them. It was, I think the next day she left Australia, paid on, on the flight with four of her children, paid by the school. I received a, a lot of support from the wider Jewish community in Australia. They were absolutely aghast at what had happened and aghast at the way at, as that Leifer was manipulating the system in Israel. I had a lot of people that stood by us and with us and raised their voices with us. It was incredibly empowering and important. I understand also that uh, you set up a Facebook group, hashtag bring life back, from a group that heavily restricted access to the internet, were able to troll that Facebook group. How do you respond to that? I found it very surprising, especially because some of the accusations against us about why we were trying to get justice was that we were not religious anymore. And... Here, you know, I'm using social media, something that I was absolutely forbidden as as a child growing up, and I have people from that community coming onto the page and and literally trolling and telling me that everything I was saying was lying. It was very upsetting. When did you personally come to the realisation that you were part of a cult and also that you didn't have to be part of that cult? It was, it was a slow, but it was also a fast process to realise that that way of life was not for me anymore and that there was other ways to live that were more aligned with my values. And I think it really came to a point when Ellie told me she had gone to the police to give a police statement about LIFA. And this was early 2011. I had just given birth to my daughter. I was hormonal. I was, I was dealing with a lot of the trauma coming up as well. And I, 
I really sat down and contemplated what it would mean for me in my community to give a police statement and how would that more importantly affect my daughter and how it affect my daughter when she grew up and was um, and, and the matchmakers looked at her because that was something that was always in my mind. And I realised if I gave that police statement while I was in the community, I would not be supported by the community and more so I would, they would, I would almost be blacklisted in the community. And I wondered how could I do something that was right but it felt so wrong it, it it didn't match up to me it didn't it didn't it didn't make sense to me and those that was the first crack in my that was a real first crack in my belief that the way that I was living was the most right way to live I'm also curious to know the moment you decided to write this book when when did you decide that this book had to be written so I was approached in 2020 by Louise Adler about writing this book and I thought about it for for a while. I felt that it was an incredibly important thing to write about. I think that the way our society learns and grows and, and how we educate each other is through our stories. And I felt that this was an incredibly important story to share. I had no idea how hard it would be to write this book you know, how hard can it be to write a story, you know, so intimately well? Yeah, I, it was a hard journey. Your writing is remarkably open, incredibly powerful and extraordinarily detailed. How did you manage to find that voice? Um, I got quite angry reading this book, The Injustice, The Blind Faith, and I imagine there might have been similar emotions running through your head too. There were, and I made the choice to actually not write the book from my perspective now necessarily of of my childhood but to go back to my childhood and write each part of my life from where I was at that point and I felt that that was the only way to be as authentic as possible. I had to really go back and kind of sit with and almost confront the younger parts of myself that had lived through that abuse I found that incredibly hard to do, but I felt that it was the only way that I was able to be authentic and to give and to write in a way that at every time of my life I was writing from the perspective of that of of that part of myself. And that was the only way that I could do it in order to really get a sense of what it was like growing up in that community and in my household. And you wrote the book with your co-author, Ellen Winnett. What kind of relationship did you have uh, and, and how did she assist you in writing this book? She was incredibly supportive and she was by my side from the get-go. I would write pages of my memories, pages of, of what I thought that I wanted to put in the book, and I would send it to her. She would give me some suggestions of what to include or what not to include or what to expand or what what to write more of and send it back to me. And then I would sit there and rework and rewrite. So by the time I sent it back to her, it looked completely different to what I had originally sent her. And having that, having someone there to help me with that process was, it was incredibly supportive. I also want to talk about religion in general, the Jewish faith. And I, I wonder what your attitude today towards the Jewish faith is and in particular to this exclusive sect? I live a secular life. I'm not religious. I understand that other people live a different way of life. 
I also feel that there's so much that needs to change, in particular in this community. I feel there's so, so much about this community still that exists that allows abuse to thrive and the leaders of the community don't, I don't feel have an appreciation for, for that. That's something that I'm still trying to work through. I think for a long time, I used disassociation to not think about my parents and to not deal with the trauma. And that's an ongoing, that's something that's still ongoing. Can you tell me what the consequences have been of this truth-telling for the ADAS community? I haven't heard from them about this book at all. I haven't heard anything about this book at all in regards to a reaction from the ADAS community. But what really troubled me was I sat down with the ADAS school board for almost a year trying to get a public apology for from them. And ultimately I chose to walk away when they asked me to write that apology myself. They, I didn't hear anything from them throughout the campaign. And then it quite, I was quite aghast that when the media approached them after the sentencing or the verdict, I think it was, and they, the, the school said something along the lines of, I can't remember what it was. It was some, some sort of acknowledgement or something. It wasn't, wasn't anything very powerful. But they, they could say that to the newspapers and they could say that, but they never, ever said that to us. They never said that to me and my sisters. They never came to us and, and said that they were sorry, that they didn't believe us and that never. But they could say something to the papers and just, you know, and, and, and look as if they had moved forward in some way when in reality they hadn't at all. It's hard to imagine that anyone could recover from the ordeal that you've been through and, and your siblings. Has healing been possible for you? And what has been the pathway to healing? Absolutely, healing is possible. And I have to believe that. And I also do believe that. And I know that it's true. I also know that the trauma that I've been through means that that will always impact my life in some way but it doesn't have to mean that that is my life. And that's a journey that I've been really working hard on myself and in therapy, trying to work through how I can best live my life and find those moments of peace and happiness. What are you able to enjoy now? Is there a sense of relief, but is there still lingering regret? Is there anger? But what, but what can you enjoy I think having the trial behind me and that having been a part of my life for so long, working towards it and then actually going through it, having that behind me has absolutely felt like I have been walking away a lot more from my past. Whereas for a long time, I thought I was walking, I felt like I was walking towards it. So there are moments of peace, moments of happiness. I'm definitely enjoying life a lot more since then. Is there any advice you'd like to offer to others who might find themselves in a similar situation? That's a tough one because I know for every single person that's it's a different journey and it can be sometimes such a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. You aren't alone. And I've seen evidence in the way that we ran our campaign and the people that supported us, how much, how powering it can be when people come together for the right cause and I feel that, that as a society, we can do that. I've seen it happen. Tassie, it's a very powerful story. And thank you for sharing it. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me.
I've been talking to Dassie Ehrlich about her memoir, In Bad Faith. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.